Hey now, say now, you're tuned into the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host, Devon Pouncey. I am here in the beautiful city of Portland, Oregon, but this time I'm at Street Roots. <laughs> I'm not at the Living the Dream Studios, but um, we got a special guest here today. He's a friend of the show. You've heard him here before, and guess what? You're going to hear him here again today. Um, Dr. Jules Boykoff, professor at Pacific University, political scientist himself, and author of several books in regards to the Olympic Games. Jules, glad we could have you back here, man. Thanks for having me back, Devon. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you are quite the commodity right now. I've been seeing you all over the place. You recently um, had an opinion piece published in the New York Times. Um, you've made appearances all over the place from CNN and, and many other platforms. But before we dig into this piece that is circulating all over the place right now, I want to sort of ask about Jules Boykoff and sort of lay the foundation um, of who you are, because I was sort of moved last week as Kyrie Irving did a post-game press conference. Um, you know, the Nets were playing a game and it was the first time the big three had all been together, obviously him, James Harden and Kevin Durant. And he discussed the issues that were going on in Israel. And he basically made the statement that, um, talking about basketball just wasn't important to him in that moment. And he wanted to shed light on what's going on in Israel and across the world in regards to um, many of the social issues that society faces. But before we get into your New York Times opinion piece, um, where you basically demanded for the Olympic Games to be canceled this upcoming summer, you were somebody who played on the United States national soccer team in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, when was that transition for you going from probably investing majority of your time and being an athlete, being a professional soccer player into dialing in on the work that you do currently, where you're discussing a lot of these important issues that take precedent over Jules Boykoff, the athlete, um, obviously with you being a political scientist now and so on and so forth. Yeah, thanks for that question, Devon. I was somebody who benefited tremendously from the time that a professional athlete's life affords, meaning during the time I was a professional soccer player, I had loads of space to do a ton of reading. And during the four years of my professional career, I probably read more books during that time period than the rest of my uh, time playing soccer combined. Yeah. I mean, it's just luxurious. You know, you can only play so much. We'd have practice in the morning, sometimes practice in the afternoons, usually our lift weight session in the afternoon. But all that downtime, when you really do have to get off your legs, you don't want to be up and moving around too much. And so I spent a ton of time drinking tea and reading and hydrating. And that was kind of the start of me realizing some things about the way the world worked that really helped me kind of move into the next phase of my life. And one other thing that I did when I was playing professional soccer here in Portland was I started volunteering for an organization that's still around, by the way. It's called Yellow Brick Road, part of Janus Youth Programs. And what we would do is go out in teams of two at night, and we would work with homeless youth who would tell us what they needed. And we would give out medical supplies, referrals, condoms. We gave out bleach kits at that time, actually. Sure. That was the second best way to deal with needles as Outside In was getting its needle exchange program rolling. And so I saw a lot from the ground floor. This is the mid-1990s. And then 
I eventually took a job while I was still playing soccer with Outside In, another organization, wonderful organization in town that is still working. And I worked there on weekends when I, when I wasn't uh, training for soccer and I continued to learn about what was going on on the ground. So I'd say reading a lot helped a ton and then listening to people who are unhoused in Portland and learning from them and trying to do what I could in a very small way to try to help that kind of pushed me into the next phase of my life. Absolutely. And, and it's real interesting. You say that in regards to what playing the sport I would say as a priority, obviously for you at a professional level, but me at the collegiate level and how playing the sport actually afforded you sort of the privilege to get involved in other things and being able to connect that to sport. Because I even look at this podcast here and I've, I've given you a lot of credit over the time um, for the influence and the impact that you had on me um, as a professor of minds in college. Um, in regards to launching this here podcast where we focus on the intersection of sports and politics. And I always say for me, I was sort of privileged in the sense that when I began to delve into this work, I was a college basketball player at Pacific University, taking some of your courses, whether it was politics in the media, politics and sport. But at the same time, this is when the Colin Kaepernick taking a knee situation came to the horizon. This was like right at that time period. So for me, when people ask me, how did I get into politics? Because most people know me for sport and what it is that I've been able to do within sport over the course of my life. And I'm like, man, well, when I started to get into the work of sports media, I almost couldn't help but to look at sports from a political lens because of the times we were in socially and what Colin Kaepernick was doing at that particular time. And as I mentioned, your class, the colloquium um, that, that I was fortunate to host, bringing different sports activists. So it's just interesting to be able to hear your story in regards to sort of that transition of what ultimately has now become your life's work, you know, in, in this part of your life and, and going forward. And I feel like it's the same for me. So it, it's really interesting to start with that foundation there before we uh, have you criticize the Olympics up and down here on this episode. Well, let me just say, Devon, you know, it's so gratifying to hear that, first of all. And it's been my great fortune to have the chance to work with you. And you know, you were such a superstar student doing really important research in the media class that you did that, that no one's ever done before or since. And, and it's just so great to see you, you know, using your mind full throttle here, both in the sports world and outside. I mean, one thing that I think both of us benefit from being interested at that nexus of politics and sports is that there are vibrant social movements happening right now. And the general rule of thumb is that we only get Colin Kaepernick, we only get Megan Rapino because there's vibrant movements in the streets that sort of create space for that kind of athlete activism to pop up. And so what a time to be alive right now. What a yeah. time to be thinking about politics and sports. What a time to be studying it. So, you know, we just happen to meet each other at the right time in this world. Yeah, it, it definitely played out. Like I said, I tell people all the time, like, man, it was something that I never imagined. It was something that I never planned for, but um, I, I wouldn't change the way things rolled out. And, and like I said, obviously, I'm still, you know, working in the sports space and, you know, commentating Portland State games, collegiate games. This podcast obviously has a big time sports element to it, but also get to do more of the work that I deem to be more important here at Street Roots. Um, so it, it's just interesting how everything sort of played out. But like I said, I want to always, I didn't, not always, but I wanted to start with that today because, um, 
you know, sometimes people don't necessarily understand how to A, separate sports from politics or B, how they intersect in so many interesting and dynamic ways that people are sort of afraid to kind of delve into because, um, you know, in the case of the Olympic Games, as I mentioned, you being a U.S. national soccer player yourself, canceling the Olympics, which is essentially what you demanded in that New York Times piece, is something that would seem like the absolute opposite of what an athlete would want to do. And the way that it would affect the athlete would more so be in a negative light than a positive light. Um, but you cover a lot more bigger issues um, outside of just the athlete. But for you, starting with the athlete in particular, um, how do we navigate through canceling the Olympics, but also making sure that we're prioritizing the athletes in this process? Mm -hmm. Well, for starters, I would say that if we were only to listen to the medical officials in Japan and around the world, it would be an open and shut case. We would have already canceled the Olympics. They're all on the same page saying that hosting a mega event like this with tens of thousands of people coming to Japan without necessarily being vaccinated in a place where Japan is got less than 2% of the population vaccinated is just a straight up bad idea. What, the only reason it's complicated is because we bring athletes into the equation as we should, because this is a sports mega event. and. I feel really bad for these athletes who are very much caught in the middle. At this stage, there are basically only two options, and that is cancellation or move ahead. You can't postpone them further simply because the International Olympic Committee, the group of people that are based in Lausanne, Switzerland, who oversee the games, have decided that they do not want to postpone one more time. If we think about it, the only reason why these games were postponed for a year was because athletes stood up and asked big questions and said they didn't want to go compete in the middle of a pandemic in Tokyo. So if we rewind to March 2020, it was only because Canadian athletes basically said they were going to do a boycott of those games that the International Olympic Committee and their president, Tomas Bach, said, oh, yeah, OK, we'll postpone them just a few short days after saying that they'd never even uttered the word postponement and cancellation in their executive board meetings. And so athletes were at the forefront. But now you see the IOC foreclosing that option and saying it's going to be cancellation or we're going for it. And they're definitely saying that we're going for it. So I think the simple way of maybe breaking it down to start with is that there are two groups of people inside Japan and outside of Japan who have different sorts of vested interests and different sorts of priorities. One of those groups is medical officials and everyday people who live in Japan where less than 2% of the population is vaccinated, even frontline workers, less than half of them, frontline medical workers, less than half right now are vaccinated. And they're all saying, whoa, whoa, let's slow the roll here and let's cancel these Olympics. It's not worth it to host this sports mega event. On the other hand, other vested interests, so their vested interests are public health in right. the country where they live. Yeah. Then there's other people that are saying, oh, no, no, we can do a sports mega event that brings more than 100,000 people for the Olympics, plus another tens of thousands more for the Paralympics. Their vested interests are money interests. And I'm talking about the International Olympic Committee. I'm talking about the organizers in, in Japan themselves. And to a certain degree, the government that's used a whole bunch of taxpayer money to make this happen. Let's not forget, Devon, that these Olympics were originally supposed to cost $7.3 billion. Now they cost in the neighborhood of $30 billion. Whoa. 
And even with that, Devon, all that public money, almost all of it, but a little bit under $7 billion of it was public money. Even with that, the taxpaying public is overwhelmingly saying they don't want the games to happen this summer. The most recent poll that just came out yesterday, 83% of the population in Japan do not want to have the Olympics in Tokyo. 83%. That is unparalleled in the Absolutely. Olympics. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. Very interesting there. And, and you talk about the money aspect of all of this. And, and obviously, um, you know, in, in the piece that you wrote, um, you sort of talked about these trickle down economics in regards to who gets paid, um, who is impacted most in a positive way in regards to the Olympic Games and the athletes certainly weren't at the top of that list. Um, can you speak more to that a little bit? Sure. Olympic honchos always tell us that, yeah, there's a lot of money involved in the Olympics, but it trickles its way down to athletes. So the athletes actually do benefit. They also often say that local people in the host city benefit in one way or another. But tons of academic research points in the exact opposite direction. In fact, most people who've studied the issue carefully argue that the Olympics are actually an exercise in trickle-up economics. The money trickles back up into the pockets of the International Olympic Committee, those who organize the Olympics, the big-time broadcasters like NBC, the big-time corporate sponsors of the Olympics like Coca-Cola, Panasonic, Alibaba, you name it. Where it doesn't go is to the athletes. There's actually a really interesting study carried out by Ryerson University in a, an athlete group called Global Athlete that found that they compared the Olympics and how much money that Olympic athletes got from the games to athletes from other sports, like the NHL, National Hockey League, the NBA, National Basketball League, the National Football League. Uh, they also had um, the English Premier League of football. Mm -hmm. And what they found, Yvonne, was Olympians make 4.1% of all the revenues that are gained through the Olympics, 4.1. Wow. For those other leagues, it's between 40 and 60%. So there's a huge wow. gap between what Olympians are making and all these other people in these other leagues, most of whom are you know, in unions, of course, that helps a lot. But the point is that there's a huge disparity among these athletes and Olympic athletes are not having that money trickle down to them. In fact, it's mostly trickling up into the pockets of the already rich. Wow, that is deep stuff and very interesting numbers there. And like I said, I know we're starting with the athletes here, but that just kind of, you know, tugs at my heart in that regard because, you know, I could just imagine if I had the opportunity to play in the Olympic Games, I would do anything that I possibly could. I mean, we even see here in American sports where, you know, you, you had athletes who made a push to be able to play in their respective sports um, here in America, we obviously know about the NBA and the bubble. We've seen leagues play without fans, and we're even seeing guys that have been advocating for fans to be back as we're starting to learn more in, in regards to how to navigate through this pandemic, even though um, we still got a long way to go to be able to find sort of a new sense of normalcy. But to compare that to the Olympic Games, which you would imagine to be the bigger sporting spectacle <laughs> because it, it's a global games than that of the NBA, which is, you know, here in America, the NHL here in America, the NFL, so on and so forth to know that 
this huge global entity that is the Olympic Games that probably make more money. I know they're, you know, they're, they're um, every two years in regards to the Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympics and so on and so forth. But um, I just wouldn't imagine that the disparity would be that large <laughs> from the money that is obtained by these athletes, I guess, locally or, or nationally than that of a, a global event like the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned the the bubble, and a lot of people will point to the NBA or the bubble for the WNBA, or maybe like the Australian Open that tried to pull off their event. And you look at the number of athletes who are involved with those events, and they're minuscule compared to the Olympics. I mean, the Olympics have 11,000 athletes coming from all around the world. Most of them are, don't have, well, many of them, I should say, will not have access to a vaccine before they go, and they're going to roll into the country. That's not to mention the 90,000 workers and officials that will come in from outside the country to work on the Olympics. You're talking more than 100,000 people coming together in Tokyo from outside, none of whom must be vaccinated, none of whom will be quarantined when they arrive. And it doesn't take much thinking beyond that to realize why the Japanese public is very much turned against the Olympics. It'd be scary to have all these folks rolling in from places like the United States, Brazil, India, who are all sending athletes, by the way, having them just saunter into the country and uh, to to be in an optional sporting spectacle, that's got to be horrifying. And that's what we're seeing now in Japan, increasing dissent against the Olympics. The protests are only getting bigger in the streets. The clamoring from medical officials is only getting louder. And we still have around 65 days to go until the actual Olympics arrive. Absolutely. I'm curious your thoughts on this, because this is something that sort of just popped in my head as we've been speaking here. But um, obviously, you know, Tokyo is in Japan and here in America in particular, we know um, that there's been an unfortunate uptick in regards to um, hate against the the Asian community, um, in large part having to do with you know, our former president, Donald Trump, and some of the things that he had to say in regards to this virus and how it is connected to that of China, which is, of course, all on the continent of Asia. Tokyo, obviously, is in Japan, but still, it's Asian hate that we've seen um, from all type of different descents that come from that continent after sort of the correlation between that of the coronavirus and the Asian community. Um, Could you see that being something that could happen if indeed these games do progress and end up taking place? And there's sort of another super spread, as you would say, of the virus due to some of the statistics and things that you've already laid out and why Tokyo wouldn't be an ideal place to host these games. That's a really interesting point, Devon. And I I actually haven't heard anybody else make that. It's an original point. And yes, let's think back to what happened with China and how it appears that the coronavirus emerged from China. And that very fact structured permission for hate mongers like President Trump and, and others to start with all this hate toward Asians. And that's a really interesting point you're raising. What if the Olympics in Tokyo turned into another super spreader event, not just within the country, but then of course, diffracting out into the world? I mean, it's a dystopic thought. And yet, unfortunately, because we know with the mutant strains and and the variants that it could very possibly happen, that too could structure permission for people to come along and blame Japan for this. 
mean, I think that people like you and me who follow this very carefully would realize actually they've basically been forced to stage the Olympics by the International Olympic Committee. And at the end of the day, it's actually the International Olympic Committee that decides whether the Olympics are going to happen or not. But the average person that doesn't follow those kind of jurisdictional issues like we might, uh, might just blame it on Japan and say all these awful things that, that just amplifies Asian hate. So yeah, that's a really interesting point you're raising. Absolutely. Has the IOC done anything or, or what, are the, what are the points they're trying to make in regards to why the games should be played in 2021, although they were postponed in the year of 2020? Is it a matter of maybe we know more about this virus? Um, obviously, the vaccine is something that we've already alluded to, um, but that doesn't necessarily correlate with the location <laughs> in regards to, you know, how few of folks have been vaccinated in Japan. Um, what is it that the IOC feels is allowing this to be credible in regards to them being able to host the event this year in comparison to last year, although we're still in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Well, believe it or not, Devon, the International Olympic Committee does not call me up personally and ask for my place. So I can't you tell you. Exactly I do. <laughs> so, so I can't tell you like what they're saying in their most honest moments, but I can tell you what they say in public. And that is that they believe that they can stage a safe Olympics. They've put a number of protocols in place. For example, if you want to compete as an athlete, you have to arrive with uh, coronavirus, negative coronavirus tests in hand, and then you're going to get tested every single day while you're here. They've issued these playbooks. They call them playbooks for each group of people who will be attending the Olympics, from athletes to volunteers to people in the field of journalism. And in fact, actually, um, one of a, an athlete actually sent me a page from something he had a sign that's related to the playbooks just today. I, I can't say I didn't ask the person for permission. This is somebody who's bound going to Tokyo here. And this individual heard me on the radio this morning in Canada, and they reached out to me and say, hey, look at this waiver they're asking me to sign. And it basically says all of the responsibility, if anything happens to you as an athlete, is on you as an athlete. You are absolving the International Olympic Committee, the Tokyo organizers, the Japanese hosts and government of any responsibility whatsoever. It says it in black and white on this sheet that this individual sent me today. And so it's a little easier maybe to press ahead with the Olympics when you've got uh, litigation nation documents in order that say you will not be litigated if everything goes awry. And then you'll just skate on back to Lausanne, Switzerland, and everything's going to be all okay. You're going to get your broadcaster money. I think it, we should say, Devon, that you know there's a reason why the organizers of the Olympics and the International Olympic Committee are perfectly fine with having a made-for-TV event with no fans in the stands whatsoever. And that's because if they can do that and broadcast the Olympics, they will continue to get the broadcaster and corporate revenue flowing into their coffers. And you know what? 73% of the International Olympic Committee's money comes from broadcasters like NBC here in the United States, but other places around the world. Another 18% of their uh, revenues comes from the corporate sponsors like Coca-Cola and Panasonic and so on. And so that's more than nine out of every $10 that rolls into their money hutch that they, they, they get no matter what, if there's fans in the seats or not. And they've already announced that there'll be no 
overseas fans who are allowed to attend. We're going to still wait and see whether any fans from Japan will be allowed to attend these Olympics. But even if there's nobody in the fa- in the stands, which might seem weird from an athlete perspective and kind of a hollow scene, we've seen it over and over again in these other sports, no problem for the International Olympic Committee because their money will still continue to flow right to them. My goodness. Speaking of the broadcasters now, obviously, you know, you mentioned NBC. Um, we've seen so many different entities make so many different statements in the last year or so in regards to obviously coronavirus, um, racial issues, so on and so forth. Um, Are you seeing any challenges from any of these broadcasters to that of the IOC in regards to, hey, we're going to broadcast these games, but should we even be having these games? Obviously, according to many of the things that you've already laid out here in this episode and the New York Times, so on and so forth. Or does it seem like it's all about the almighty dollar for these broadcast entities as well up to this point? Yeah, the broadcasters have been conspicuously silent up to this point, and they seem to be content to be sitting in the shadows while the International Olympic Committee and the Tokyo organizers do most most of the sort of dirty work, if you will, in public and dealing with people like us that might want to ask them questions about what's happening. But they definitely have leverage. They definitely also have insurance, by the way. Uh, Private insurance policies that we are not privy to see, but we do know from little bits that have leaked out that the International Olympic Committee has insurance, the broadcasters have insurance, the Tokyo organizers have insurance as well. And if the games are canceled, this could be one of the biggest insurance payouts of all times. It probably will be for the sports field, the biggest insurance payouts of all time, which means none of these entities that are powerful that are going to make money off the Olympics are going to lose a ton of money. But if they cancel the Olympics, they won't gain all those lucrative profits that they otherwise would have, because this is a cash cow for the International Olympic Committee. I mean, this is their golden cash spigot, and they are not wanting to winch it shut uh, just because of some pandemic that's killed more than 3.3 million people around the globe and more than 11,000 people in Japan proper. Absolutely. Taking it back to the athletes now, say in some miraculous world that Thomas Bach and the International Olympic Committee read Jules Boykoff's article in the New York Times and they say, you know what, we're going to listen to that guy. He's a pretty smart guy. We should take heed to what it is that he's saying. We're canceling the Olympic Games. In what ways do you see that they could help the athlete if they did such a thing and and how could they assist the athlete from a being safe from a super spreader event or a potential super spreader event, I should say, because obviously, you know, we we haven't gotten to the point to see if that's actually what it will be or not, but we see legitimate reasons why it could potentially be just that. Um, How do you support the athletes in the sense that the games do get canceled and the IOC listens to Jules Boykoff? Well, that is a hilarious scenario where the International <laughs> Olympic Committee listens to me. Plot twist, plot twist. Yeah, that would be a major plot twist. Uh, but just running with that, and if these Olympics are in fact canceled, I think that first and foremost, we need to turn attention, and not only attention, but actual money toward the mental health support and counseling that each and every one of these athletes most assuredly deserves. The International Olympic Committee often talks about them being, quote, athletes first. That's one of their big slogans that they say. Well, if these games are canceled, they're going to have a chance to live up to that slogan. 
and funnel lots of money to these Olympians because it's going to be tough on their mental states. It's already tough. The not knowing, the uncertainty can be incredibly difficult on an athlete as they prepare for the biggest event of their life. And so that is how they can maybe put their money where their mouth is. I'd be really happy if they did that. But I think that it's not going to just happen automatically. I think people are going to have to demand it. And I will say to you, Devon, it's, I won't surprise you, but I'll stand shoulder to shoulder with Olympic athletes demanding a bigger piece of the Olympic money pie. We talked about that study before where they're only getting 4.1% of the money pie compared to the NFL, NBA, and all those other groups that are getting 40 to 60. Right. Uh, they also need to get a bigger bit of the money when it comes to uh, their own mental health support in the wake of these games, if they are in fact canceled. And so it's not going to happen automatically. We're going to have to push for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then also, you know, in this sense now where we have these games that as of right now, it's looking like they're going to take place. Um, but again, going back to the year that we've had where we've seen athletes step up and, and be vocal in regards to racial issues, in regards to, you know, a, a lot of things that stem from the, the unfortunate murder of George Floyd. The Olympics also are not allowing protests to take place this year if they do indeed host the games. What are your thoughts on that? Because it's like we have amplified the athlete's voice like in an unprecedented way in this past year and some change. And now all of a sudden you have the biggest, you know, like I said, the biggest sporting spectacle that is now trying to in a way diminish the athlete's voice. Um, how does that tie into all of this here, in your opinion? Yeah, it's a great point. And we're living in this amazing moment in terms of athlete activism that we haven't seen for decades, really. And that is one of the downsides of the potential cancellation of Tokyo is not being able to see huge actions of athlete activism. We have a lot of athletes who care very much about politics right now. You mentioned Kyrie Irving at the outset of the show. Uh, there's all sorts of athletes like Gwen Berry from uh, track and field who raised her fist at the Pan Am Games in 2019. At Rayson Bowden, a fencer from the United States, took a knee at those very same Pan Am Games. How did the International Olympic Committee respond to that outburst of activism? Well, they doubled down on a rule in the Olympic Charter. It's called Rule 50. And Rule 50 basically says that if you're an athlete, you cannot engage in political or religious demonstrations or protests inside any Olympic venue or other areas, which seems like pretty much that covers it. Um, but you have all these athletes who have been talking politics and who very much might speak out. Another thing about these athletes, just as a side note, is that there's a number of trans athletes that are aspiring to make the Olympics, and one is already qualified. How powerful could that be in a moment uh, where there's incredibly negative backlash against trans athletes in the United States with all these states passing these horribly repressive laws against trans athletes. How powerful would that be to see trans athletes competing on the Olympic stage? We would get deprived of that if the Tokyo Games gets canceled. Not to mention the fact that the Olympics are actually one of the biggest stage for women athletes to shine. The last Olympics, there was a study done that found that half of the media coverage, the television coverage on NBC was of women. I mean, how many events are like that, big events where women get pushed to the top of the list of importance? So there's a lot of reasons why from the athlete's perspective, they might want to have the games keep going. So 
what's happened since this all went down with the race uh, in Bowdoin and Gwen Berry taking a, a fist and a knee is that the International Olympic Committee said, okay, we are not going to allow any protest at these Olympic Games. Interesting development was the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee stated that they listen to their athletes and they will allow athletes to engage in activism. So at the, uh, for example, at the track qualifiers that are coming up in Eugene in June to determine who will go to the Olympic Games in Tokyo should they transpire, athletes will be free to uh, wear Black Lives Matter jacket on the medal stand or do a, take a, do a fist, take a knee, whatever they decide they want to do, and they will not get punished for it. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens if the Olympics transpire, whether all these U.S. athletes who appear to have the backing of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee decide to protest in the Olympic environment where the Olympic controls have made it very clear that you cannot protest. In fact, recently they said that statements such as Black Lives Matter will not be allowed on the medal stand or in any other areas around. You'll be allowed to say things like you're pro-peace and that kind of thing, um, but you can't talk about that you're pro-Black Lives Matter, anything that might get a little bit more spiky. So if the games happen, there will be a showdown when it comes to athlete activism. At least that's what it's shaping up to be. An absolute showdown. I was listening to a podcast, and and I forget the article that he alluded to, but um, The Right Time with Bomani Jones was the podcast that I was listening to, and he was essentially talking about like how this could backfire for the Olympic Games and the IOC, being that they have taken this stance that athletes can't protest or, or they can't do any types of demonstrations, how this would just amplify that moment for the athletes that do decide to sort of go against the grain of what it is that the Olympics are saying that these athletes can't do and them going to protest and standing up for what it is that they believe and so on and so forth. So I thought that was sort of an interesting outlook in regards to how this can absolutely backfire on the Olympics because this could also this could almost be that like signature moment for a lot of these athletes some who probably will never play in the Olympic Games again just because of you know every four years you have the Summer Olympics you know same goes for the Winter Olympics but usually you're in one or the other you're either in the summer you either participate in the Summer Games or the Winter Games but this could be that signifying moment for these athletes who may never, you know, play in the Olympic Games again. But now, as we had mentioned earlier at the beginning of this episode, they have that moment where they could really dig into the more significant work and the work that deals with some of the issues that should take precedent over them, you know, being an athlete and trying to go out and get a gold medal, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I mean, think about this, Devon. The International Olympic Committee, what if they changed their tune and said, yeah, you want to protest for Black Lives Matter or whatever you want to protest for? Yeah, go for it. We're going to totally get rid of Rule 50. In a weird way, that would kind of undercut the power of the actions. Because part yeah. of what generates the power is that you're going against the powerful people that run the Olympics. Exactly. So all of a sudden, if it's just totally condoned, it's like, yeah, well, big whoop. You know, the person, I mean, it'd still be cool. Don't get me wrong. I wouldn't say big whoop, but some people might come along and say, oh, yeah, well, they can do it. They're not going to get in trouble or anything like that. Right. Here's the factor nobody's talking about, though, Devon, is that the reason, in my view, why the International Olympic Committee wants to keep tamping down on dissent right now is because they have an incredibly controversial Olympics coming up in 2022 in Beijing. 
less than nine months from now when we're speaking, Devon, they're supposed to host the Winter Olympics there. And they want to just, the International Olympic Committee just wants to keep politics out entirely because there's so much criticism coming down on China because of their human rights when it comes to the ethnic Uyghur population, when it comes to Hong Kong, when it comes to the longstanding issue of Tibet, that they don't want to let this cat out and out of its bag, if you will, before those Olympics, because it could just be a free for all and they don't know what's going to happen in the host country yeah. because they are so repressive, right? So who knows? My guess, and of course, prediction is always tricky business, is that the International Olympic Committee will keep tamping down on dissent at least until the end of Beijing. And then by the time they pivot to Paris, if you know the Olympics are still happening and Paris is actually going to host the 2024 Summer Games, they'll start to loosen up then in a place like this more more democratic, a putative democracy like France. So that's kind of a wild prediction. You know, I'm not a wild prediction. Yeah, yeah, guy, yeah. For sure. You're a political yeah. scientist. So yeah. <laughs> I, I like getting wild predictions from political scientists because we don't get it much. <laughs> no, no, not for me, certainly. I'm yeah, not for sure. Fan. I'm aware. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of prediction, but I, that it's more kind of just assessing the environment and assessing the factors and the power map that's in front of us. And that's kind of the way I envision it going forward. Hey, I could be totally wrong. Maybe just yeah. Omas Bach, the head of the International Olympic Committee, hates protest and is always going to keep it out of the Olympic Games. And that's just going to be the way it's going to be. That's going to be their tradition. Um, but I think they have to loosen up because the world has changed massively and, and they haven't changed at all. Yeah, yeah. They're on the wrong, they're on the wrong side of history in that sense. Absolutely. They are. No question about it. Absolutely. But let's transition out of the Olympics now here. I want to talk about um, the recent development. Obviously, I'm a Bay Area guy, born and raised in the Bay. And believe you me, Dr. Boykoff, we will have you talk about the NBA here shortly. So uh, saddle, saddle up for that, my friend. But <laughs> um, I want to talk about this new development in Oakland, in, in the Bay Area, which is my hometown. I grew up an Oakland A's fan my entire life. Um, you know, I grew up going to Oakland A's games, far more Oakland A's games than San Francisco Giants games. Obviously, you know, there's a little bit of rivalry there with that battle of the Bay. But um, recently, the, the MLB essentially granted the A's permission to start looking into other markets in regards to um, relocating the franchise because um, they won't be able to continue playing too much longer at the Coliseum, the Oakland Coliseum. Obviously, the Raiders have already left from that same location, and they're in Las Vegas. The Warriors played at the Coliseum as well. They've now relocated to San Francisco, but the city of Oakland has not yet approved the Oakland A's to be able to break ground and, and be able to build another stadium in the city. And so the MLB, who's obviously looking to expand and looking to see what they can do about all of this, is allowing Oakland, the Oakland A's franchise to look other places. Obviously, Portland has been a city that has been, in a sense, salivating, you know, to, to bring a major league baseball team here to the city. And I recall, you know, when these conversations not first begin happening, because I know they've happened on and off over time, but more recently since they've happened within the last two to three years or so since Russell Wilson and Sierra have come along and become a part of this Portland Diamond Project ownership group that is attempting to bring a Major League Baseball team here to Portland. Um, you, did, you had sort of a debate with that of Dwight James from NBC Sports on KGW News, which is our NBC affiliate here in Portland. Um, and ultimately, my question is just this. Is the city of Portland 
ready to bring a major league baseball team here. Why or why not? <laughs> I think it depends what it's a great question. And it's one that Portland appears to need to confront sometime soon. Cause it seems like you really do have a serious ownership group from that Portland diamond project. I guess it depends what you mean by is by Portland, who Portland is. If we're talking about the sort of um, rich people, let's be honest, the rich people that would be putting their money together, pooling it to get the $4 billion or so that it would take to both pay for an expansion um, franchise fee if they go the expansion route, and then another $2 billion for the actual building of the baseball park. Um, if they can raise that money and, you know, that's one group of people. And if that's Portland, well, then they're going to say, yes, it's, it's possible. But you know full well um, from all the interviews you've done with local officials and, and U.S. senators, for that matter, from Oregon, that there's a, a moment right now happening where people are reprioritizing how we're going to spend public funds and it's going toward people more and more so that, that really need it. And the truth of the matter is folks like Sierra and Russell Wilson, God bless them, but they don't need public money for this kind of project. And so that has really forced the hand of those who are pushing for this project to say it'll be entirely privately funded. That is kind of the zeitgeist right now is private funding of these stadiums. For a long time, as you well know, um, these owners, these rich billionaire owners have dipped into public taxpayer coffers to pay for their stadiums, their, their vanity projects of the sports teams that they own. But that appears to have run its course now. Yeah. And so Portland is a very political town where you're going to have folks that are going to be aware of that history and not wanting to give a dime to rich people. We've sort of seen a preview of when Merritt Paulson, the owner of the Portland Timbers and Thorns, went through a big kerfuffle as to whether public money would be allowed to revamp the stadium to get ready for the timbers around 10 years ago. And so then Portland stood up and said, no, we don't want to give a bunch of money to an already millionaire. And I can see the same thing happening now. So I don't know. What do you think? I mean, your, your brother's into baseball. I know you used to play a ton of baseball. Do you think Portland is, is ready? Like the everyday people of the city would be excited to fill up a stadium on a regular basis for a Portland team. I think the everyday people of the city would be excited um, to, to have a baseball team here in Portland. But I also think that um, leadership is going to play a big role in all of this. And, and you obviously mentioned the private funding, but with many of the other crisis like issues that we already have in this city, it has to really be, we have to really be dialed in on the impact that bringing a major league baseball team here to Portland would have on that. And if that impact would be indeed positive. And I think that's where folks need to kind of prioritize if we bring a baseball team here to the city of Portland or not. Like I said, obviously the sports lovers are going to show up and me included, especially if the A's come to Portland. Like I said, I grew up an A's fan my entire life. I've been to more A's games than any other major league baseball team in my life. So if that team were to relocate and come to the city that I currently live in, the market that I currently live in, it's like, okay, well, I, I would probably support the A's because I am a huge fan of sport. I'm a huge fan of baseball. I'm a huge fan of that franchise in particular. But, um, yeah, I think this city has a lot more issues that need to take precedent over that of bringing a Major League Baseball team to the city. Again, sort of sticking with the theme that we've been talking about since the outset of this episode where um, – 
when do we kind of have that moment where we decide what is more important? And, you know, obviously I work with the unhoused community here in a real way in the city of Portland. And I know that there's a lot of things that need to get done. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we didn't see happen recently, for example, was that of, you know, city council not fully funding Portland Street Response, which is something that we've worked on here. And although, you know, they, they claim that they have their reasons and they want to gather more information in regards to the pilot, the reality of it is a lot of the cycles of homelessness stay the same when you don't invest fully into programs that will help people that are unhoused to actually get housing because they don't have to necessarily deal with the barriers of being arrested and interactions with police and so on and so forth that can keep them away from being able to get housed. So um, I think it more so comes down to what leadership is going to prioritize in this city and I definitely was not, um, I definitely wasn't encouraged <laughs> by that alone, the Portland Street response decision that was made um, in regards to us really seeking to fix some of the crisis issues that we have here in this city. Um, and with that, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a team was brought here and that took priority over us handling some of the issues that we have right now here in the city of Portland. So the sports fan in me is like, yeah, I would love to see a baseball team here in Portland, especially if it's the team that I've been a fan of my entire life. But uh, the guy that does, you know, that works with the unhoused people and is in the trenches with these people every day. And, and, and I know that they want to get housed and I know that they're trying to find ways out of these cycles of being unhoused and being in poverty and so on and so forth. I just hope that that still remains at the forefront of issues that we want to see fixed and that bringing a sports franchise to this city only enhances a positive impact on fixing some of the more important issues that this city is currently facing. Yeah, that's really powerful, Devon. I'm, I was interested to hear you say that you would like the A's to move up here. I didn't know if you felt like that might be bad karma, if you will, not to be too floofy here, you know. For sure. And, like uh, new agey, but like, you know, the third team to Van Moose, the Bay, um, and then to have them come here, is that kind of like damaged goods? Would you prefer it to be one of the new franchises? Should they choose to expand Major League Baseball? You don't have that karma. Remember what it was like when the Sonics left Seattle, yeah, Seattle to OKC. Yeah. There's like some bad karma still. I mean, you talk to people in Seattle about that. They're still not happy about it. And they'll never cheer for Oklahoma City again. So it's interesting to hear you talking about who comes from the area that you'd be fine with it in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like like in in that regard, like I said, would I be sad? Absolutely. But selfishly, if it came to the market that I'm in, I'd probably be a little bit more lenient in regards to us, you know, taking over the franchise that is not going to be allowed to stay in Oakland anyway. And, And the reality is, like I said, we've already seen the Warriors leave. We've already seen the Raiders leave. We know that a decision is going to have to be made rather swiftly. And the city of Oakland does not seem to be moved by the A's being able to break ground and build a new stadium in Oakland. So I know that we're now at a point where it's sort of a crossroads and something has to happen. Um, you know, I do agree that from like a karma standpoint, I would prefer expansion 
as somebody that lives in this market or if I'm in any other market that's vying to have a major league baseball team come to its city. But knowing that now we're kind of at a crossroads in regards to the A's being able to stay in Oakland, you know, just come on here to, with me where I'm at, man, and, and we'll continue to rock out <laughs> in that regard. I hear you. I, I hear you. It's really interesting. Really interesting. You know, it struck me as I was hearing you talk, Devon, about how in a lot of ways we think of these huge enterprises like a baseball team as a good example of capitalism, capitalist sport. But the way that these leagues are run are actually a pretty good example of socialism that could be transferred to the groups of folks, the unhoused folks that you work with on a daily basis. What I mean is think about how no matter how bad your team is, your the team of your life of the team is in Major League Baseball, you still benefit from revenue sharing. Yeah. So the richest and best who's doing the best in society help those who are struggling within Major League Baseball. What if we did that? In yeah. It's basically socialism. Baseball is socialism. A lot of our sports are socialism. There's a salary cap, so you yep. can't make too much money if you're an athlete. If you break the salary cap, there's penalties that are involved if you're a sports franchise. I mean, hey, we could use a little bit more of that socialism when it comes to to, uh, everyday people in Portland. I mean, it's like in a weird way, it's sort of like socialism for the rich and capitalism kind of like for the rest of us, but especially those who are unhoused and struggling, they have to abide by all these rules of capitalism when these freewheeling rich people roll into our town and benefit from a very socialist structure. And yeah, it's kind of wild. Yeah, absolutely. It is wild, man. It is wild. So yeah, basically you could just say I'm sort of teetering the teetering the line here because like I said, I am still a sports fan and, you know, obviously I cover sports, primarily basketball, but, you know, baseball is still very near and dear to my heart. And like I said, you know, the A's are too. It's a team that I grew up loving, but the work that I now do, I, I would say takes precedent over seeing, you know, one of these teams come here to this market. So, like I said, it's just more so a matter of a plan being put into place that elevates all rather than a plan being put into place or not even that great of a plan being put into place, but sort of a rush happening because now everybody is trying to get this franchise to come to their respective city and it becomes even more of a downfall of our city. And obviously, you know a lot more about this than I do in regards to um, sporting infrastructures that get built in certain cities, um, especially in regards to the Olympic Games, which obviously we've talked about greatly. And, you know, building a stadium in a new market is going to have an impact, whether it's positive or negative. Again, I think that's dependent upon the plan. But nonetheless, building a stadium anywhere, building sporting infrastructure anywhere is going to have a huge impact on a city. Like I said, you just got to plan it out to, to – really be able to reconcile if that plan will be, I mean, if that impact is going to be positive or negative. Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting lateral connection you're making there to the Olympics because these days, pretty much anyone who's going to run a big mega event like the Olympics or purchase a sports franchise and bring it to a new city is going to have people working for them that knows how to message and we know that right now you're not going to talk about taking public money away from programs for the unhoused, for example. That just would never fly from a PR perspective these days. Right. But if you look at the Olympics as an example, oftentimes what they say when they're going to build the Olympic village where the athletes stay during the Olympics, 
that what they'll do afterwards, they promise, is convert it into social housing. So it's mixed housing where you have poor folks riching with work, uh, living with people that are a little bit more rich or even very much more rich, but like mixed housing where poor folks aren't like left out in the cold and the whole place is gentrified. They say that like for London 2012, but then in reality, it didn't ever happen. Like they nationalized the project, which is to say, taxpayers in England paid for the entire project. And then they said, oh, you know, we can't do what we said we were going to do before because we lost so much money because we had to nationalize it that we aren't going to be able to do that social mm. housing. We just need to go market rate housing. So even when the honchos promise all these great things, all this, these lovely flowers, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen at the end of the day. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. For hey, sure. Uh, Healthy skepticism. Healthy skepticism. You got to be skeptical based on what history, what what history has displayed to us. So, yeah, yeah. No, I'm glad you brought that up and mentioned that. But let's uh, talk about some NBA here, Boykoff. The Blazers Blazers (laughs) made it to the playoffs and the Milwaukee Bucks made it to the playoffs. Now, Mm -hmm. I don't know who you're rooting for here. Obviously, you live here. You're here and based here in Portland. Um, you know, you, you, you're, I know you're a fan of Damian Lillard. You, you like and appreciate what it is that he brings to this market, obviously what he brings to that team with his talent as well. Um, but you, you grew up in, in Wisconsin. And so I know, you know, you, you have some uh, connection to that of the Milwaukee Bucks, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and what it is that they're doing. First off, I want to know where you stand in regards to who it is that you're rooting for in these playoffs. And then we'll get into a little bit more of, you know, the big showdown event tonight, which we'll talk about um, And this episode won't release until after. But you got Steph versus LeBron tonight as well. It's a whole lot going on in the basketball world, Boykoff. And I know you're following at least. So where do you stand on these here playoffs that are on the horizon? Well, first, the Bucs and the Blazers, my two favorite teams by a long shot. I just love both teams. I love the players on the teams. And I'm just rooting for them to make it to the championship so that I can have an identity crisis and figure it out then. (laughs) (laughs) Do do you get a custom-made jersey, have Bucks and have Blazers? (laughs) Oh, that's a good idea. I like that, Devon. Yeah, get get a custom-made jersey where one half of the jersey is Bucks and (laughs) is Blazers, and then walk around the city and see how everybody reacts to it. I love it. I love a reaction, I would imagine. I I love it. (laughs) How how can you not cheer for the Blazers? I mean, obviously, they're fun to watch, but like Damian Lillard, turning out for the Black Lives Matter marches. You know, I was out there filming one day and I was just get, watching the crowd and filming the crowd coming off the Morrison Bridge. And I came home and I was showing Kaya San, my partner, and my daughter, Jesse Juanita, the footage. And they were like, hey, that was Damian Lillard that went by. And I was like, really? Because yeah. <laughs> he was like very mild mannered and he was just with the crowd. He wasn't like out front, you know, making a big thing for himself. He was just there with the people. How can you not love Solidarity. that? Solidarity. How can you not love Carmelo Anthony? I love Carmelo Anthony. You know, when I, I was at the Rio Olympics in 2016, and he was one of the few guys that left the Olympic bubble. He went to a favela, Santa Marta favela. Before that, he was uh, marching for Freddie Gray in Baltimore, his hometown. And he's very political, very outspoken. How do you how do you not like Carmelo Anthony? I just think there's so much to love. Nurkic is just such an interesting character. And I'll, I'm with the Blazers. I think they're just a fun team. And I, I don't see how you can be a neutral and not really like the Blazers in some kind of way. Um, but you know, I grew up, like you said, in Wisconsin, my grandpa took me to Bucks games and I was sort of brainwashed into being a Bucks fan. We were never very good to be yeah. honest, many, many years. It's been tough, 
Uh, when I played professional soccer in Milwaukee, we played in the same stadium as the Bucks played in. So, oh, you know, wow. we went into the people in the hallways and stuff. So, you know, I have a connection there as well. And I love the Bucks. How can you not like Giannis and and Drew Holiday? And I just think they're Chris Middleton and and other people as well. Just a great group of guys. So I'm rooting for that to be the the final. But what about you? What who do you got moving forward here? You know, um, you know, I, I've told this story here before, but um, in, in 2013, I became a huge fan of Steph. Um, I, I met a cheerleader who I didn't know was a cheerleader for the Warriors at the time. And granted, I grew up a Kobe fan. I grew up Kobe, Lakers. When Shaq left, I stuck with Kobe. Kobe is my all-time favorite player. I would say all-time favorite athlete in regards to any individual athlete that I've been a fan of. But it was sort of during this time was when Kobe was sort of on the decline. Obviously, he had gotten older. Uh, him winning his five rings had already ran its course. Um, he had just injured the Achilles and torn the Achilles. Like, everything was just starting to go down here for, downhill for Kobe. And I'd met a girl who was a dancer for the Warriors during that time because I was still living back home in the Bay Area. And long story short, I might as well have become a season ticket holder during that particular season. And this is the 2013-14 okay. season, mm -hmm. um, which was the year before the Warriors won their first title in the 2014-15 season. And so I just remember going to those games. The first game that I went to was the game that um, LeBron hit his monumental game-winning three-pointer over Andre Iguodala when he was on the Miami Heat at the time. And he did his famous celebration when he hits his game winners. And uh, I I'm doing it here, obviously, on the camera. <laughs> Folks will be able to hear it on the audio. But, um, but, but I just recall how just phenomenal Steph Curry was throughout that entire season. And, you know, I got to watch him. Like I said, I got to go to – just about any game that I was available to go to, you know, through my friend and whatnot. And so I just sort of fell in love with the player that he was becoming and the player that he was turning into, because obviously prior to that, it was Monte Ellis's team and Curry dealt with a lot of injuries at the beginning of his career. So um, just to kind of see the turnaround of him being able to push through some of those injuries he had earlier in his career, but also it still didn't feel like I was a bandwagon fan because I had no idea that the very next season the Warriors would become champions, but I did know and feel that something was special was on the horizon. So I would definitely say I'm pulling for Steph Curry and the Warriors. Um, Steph Curry is my favorite player in the league today. Um, and like I said, he, he became one of my favorite players at that time, obviously, you know, God rest his soul, but Kobe was still in the league at that time. So he still took priority in that sense, but Curry was that new generation player that I just was starting to fall in love with just in regards to, you know, who he was as a person, his skill set. Um, he was the first point guard that I felt like actually had Chris Paul's number, although that same season, Chris Paul and the Clippers did eliminate the Warriors in that playoffs, um, in that 2014 playoffs. But I remember going to the game four of that series and Curry just lighting it up. And it was just something new and exciting that was on the horizon. And obviously, he's probably playing the best basketball in the league right now currently. So I'm hoping that the Warriors some way figure out a way to be able to upset the Lakers tonight. I still want to see the Lakers win on Friday in the case that they do lose here tonight because I'd like to see both the Warriors and the Lakers make it into the playoffs this year. I don't quite care to see San Antonio. 
San Antonio or Memphis make it in. Um, but I do think the Brooklyn Nets ultimately are my favorite to go out and win the title okay. this year. Um, but, yeah, I, I want to see Steph go far. I'm glad that Steph is back. Obviously, we missed him last year in the postseason, and, and I think he's just the most electrifying guy in the league and really, like, the best show in the league. So, hopefully, you know, he wins tonight and secures that seventh seed, so we know we'll be seeing him in the playoffs. And even if he does do that, I'm confident that the Lakers will beat whoever wins that Spurs and Memphis game. And they'll probably still end up being in the NBA Finals, even as an eighth seed or, of course, a seventh seed if they come away victorious tonight. But I got the Brooklyn Nets ultimately winning it all, man. I just think okay. it's too much firepower over there. Unless, unless, getting political here, I do see a world where Kyrie Irving decides not to play or decides to boycott here in the playoffs. As we've seen, we more so see it on the women's side, you know, where – um, you know, you got women like Maya Moore who have like just abandoned playing sports to really dive more so into social issues and political issues and using their platform to ultimately create change. And I feel like Kyrie Irving is right on the cusp of that. And what better timing for him to be able to make a statement similar to the one that he made in the press, in the press conference that we alluded to at the beginning of this episode than to say, you know what, midway through the playoffs, I'm done playing because there are more important issues in the world that I want to, you know, put my time and focus into. So I'm, I'm sort of, you know, keeping my eye on that as well. But if Kyrie Irving plays and all three of those guys are out there together, I think it's no stopping the Nets. But Kyrie Irving is kind of a wild card to me in that sense mm -hmm. because – I'm really kind of anticipating him just like leaving midway through the playoffs to do what he feel is his life's work and, and the important work in his life rather than that of going out and winning a championship this season. I love that. I love that idea of Kyrie maybe just skating for, for things that he views as more important in life. Um, I'm a big fan of Kyrie Irving standing up for what's right, you know, and he, he stood up against pipelines through the Dakotas as well. He's got strong connections to the Standing Rock people, uh, the Standing Rock Sioux. Um, he's native himself, his background, and, you know, he's just a fascinating guy. I'm, I'm a big fan. So it's keeping us on our toes, too, because that's it's a keeping whole lot us on of our toes. Yeah, that's a whole lot of firepower. Yeah, yeah man. So, so, so that's what I got there. But do you think the Blazers, do you think the Blazers and the Bucks get out of the first round at least? Oh, yeah. No, I think they're both going to be in the championship, Devon. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so you, so you preparing to get that jersey, that half That's and right. half jersey. <laughs> yeah. You helped me deal with that situation so well. Well, I lead with my heart. When it comes to predicting the NBA, my heart all the way. So I'm thinking Portland and the Bucks in, in the championship, and I'll have to deal with it then. And I like your solution. So that's what I'm going with. Yeah. Who do you got the, the Brooklyn team playing in the final then? The Lakers. I think the, the Lakers, Lakers go to the finals. Oh, wow. I, okay. I think, yeah, I do still believe that the Lakers come out of the West, regardless of what happens tonight. And obviously, you know, if they win tonight, I wouldn't be surprised. They're the favorites tonight. If they lose tonight, I still expect them to beat, like I said, the winner of Memphis and San Antonio on Friday. On Friday. And although they'd be an eighth seed, I still think they're going to be the Utah Jazz team. Um, even though they, they wouldn't have home court advantage there. Um, if they win the night and they become a seventh seed, I think that they'll beat the Phoenix Suns. I think they always have sort of had the Phoenix Suns number, especially Anthony Davis. So I could imagine that they're not going to make things easy on the Warriors here tonight. But again, 
Curry is playing the best basketball in his career right now, which is like, you wouldn't imagine that we would be saying that based on everything that he's accomplished already up to this point in his career um, individually and, you know, the Warriors franchise as a whole, you know, going out and winning the championships that they've won, him winning unanimous MVP, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. I have never seen this dude light it up in this way. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's been quite impressive. So I think like he's probably the most lethal individual in the playoffs just because of what it is that he can do that nobody else in the league can but ultimately yeah I think the Lakers still come out of the Western Conference um, because I think the only team that could challenge them would be the LA Clippers and a lot of that has to do with obviously the Clippers being a good team Um, you know I think Kawhi Leonard you know and Paul George is, is is a good matchup going up against the tandem of you know LeBron James and Anthony Davis but also you get no home court advantage in that situation for either team. Um, You know, I still think Los Angeles is still Laker town, but neither team would have to travel to play anywhere. So it's like if they play against each other, even though the Lakers would be the lower seed, you would probably get more Lakers fans to show up to Staples because every game in that series would be in Staples. But I also think that that could lean in, you know, the Clippers' favor, not having to travel either and being able to play at home. So it would just be an all-out clash between those two teams. So that would be interesting to Mm -hmm. to see as well. But I I still got the Lakers' favor to come out of the West. Okay. All right. Well, we shall see. Indeed, indeed. Well, man, thank you for taking your time out. As I mentioned before, you're a commodity these days. You know, you're doing very important work, good work, and um, always grateful for your willingness to come here on this platform. You know, you'll be back here again at some point and, and appreciate you for hopping on today, Dr. Boykoff. Oh, it's my great pleasure. I appreciate you, Devon, and look forward to seeing what happens here. Absolutely. On that note, we are going to leave you all the only way that we know how, and that is to stay woke and go with.